Even 400 years after his death, William Shakespeare's influence is profound. But is it right to say that he changed everything? Stay tuned. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Stephen Marsh is an essayist who lives in Toronto. These days, he's on the speaking circuit talking about the end of America. So what's he doing on our podcast? Well, 10 years ago, he wrote another book. It was called How Shakespeare Changed Everything. In it, he looked across 450 years of human existence and touched down on all the places where he saw the influence of Shakespeare. His book offers dispatches from world culture, from psychiatry, from ornithology, and more, all to bolster his contention that, quote, William Shakespeare was the most influential person who ever lived, unquote. The book is a lot of fun. Stephen March is, too. So we offered him the chance to break away from the dysphoria of his current book tour to revel once again in Shakespeare, the subject he loves the most. We call this podcast Influence is Thine. Stephen Marsh is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. You know what I want to know? When you were writing this book, did you have a certain reader in mind? Because it often sounds like you're talking to people who think that they don't like Shakespeare or they have no reason to like Shakespeare or even try it. And you're trying to tell them not only that they should, but that the they probably already do like Shakespeare and maybe they don't know it. Well, I mean, I think I was a Shakespeare professor for a while, and I think when you're in that mode, you're kind of selling Shakespeare to people, although he's not super hard to sell. Like, if you can't teach Shakespeare, you really shouldn't be in the teaching game. Like, he's, I, I, I honestly believe that almost everyone can get Shakespeare, but like, he's not like Kafka, where like Kafka's great, but some people get him and some people don't. I mean, if you're not going to get Macbeth, I don't, I don't think you're going to get out of lo- a lot of out of literature in general. So. You know, I wrote it for the general reader. I wrote it for people who are not experts. And I wrote it for people who maybe had only experienced Shakespeare as being forced to read it in high school or who had been dragged to a couple of plays because it was sort of the virtuous thing to do. Well, well, that's the thing. Sometimes people run into Shakespeare, they encounter it or they have to read it in school. And it just doesn't it doesn't take it doesn't stick. Right. Yeah, for sure. Something in Shakespeare should stick with everyone. I mean, I I really I know that sounds uh, kind of ridiculous, but I do think if you see Macbeth, if you see sit through a good production of Macbeth or Romeo and Juliet or Othello, you're going to get something from it. If you don't, you know, you probably just don't like theater at all, which is fine. Some people don't. But um, you know, the thing about Shakespeare is that we treat him as an elite cultural product. But ultimately, he's popular culture. But in terms of the Academy, the big question is, why does Shakespeare matter now? So was that what was on your mind when you first started writing? I think Shakespeare always matters. And the, the thing that's really weird about him is that he, he, like, he continues to matter. Um, you know, most writers just, they have their period and then their period is over. Or they go out of fashion and they come back to fashion. But Shakespeare, you know, like the famous Polish critic who called Shakespeare our contemporary, the weird thing about Shakespeare is that he feels totally relevant. I mean, during the Trump years, 
like it, it was very obvious to me that Coriolanus suddenly mattered in a whole new light and that Coriolanus was almost written as if it were, it felt to me like it were written about the Trump era. That continues. Like this era of high politics we're in, rumors of war, uh, is feels distinctly Shakespearean to me. But, you know, I would have said I said that when I wrote the book and that was that was over 10 years ago, too. Yeah. And you get into real specifics about what it is about Shakespeare that makes him matter. And some of them are a lot of fun to talk about. So let's get into the nitty gritty. Um, one of the more provocative claims that you make early on in your book is that Shakespeare changed our sex lives. Discuss. Well, I mean, I think the reason when you deal with his reception, like when you watch how people read Shakespeare and how they performed Shakespeare through time, the amazing thing you notice is that everybody loves Shakespeare, but they also have to cut certain bits out of him because he's so complex and he's so much about the human state that really people can't quite bear Shakespeare, just like they can't quite bear life. And sex, of course, is a huge part of it. I mean, the term Balderize comes from an editor of Shakespeare who cut all the sex out of Shakespeare. But when you look at what they cut out of him, I mean, some of the more fascinating cases to me are like the Nazis and the Merchant of Venice. And you would think, well, that's like Shakespeare's anti-Semitic play. And the Nazis were huge Shakespeare files, like Joseph Goebbels did his dissertation on Shakespeare. And the reason is that, you know, in that play, the Jewish people are human. And the human reality comes first in all of Shakespeare's plays, and it's just unbearable to people. And the same, you know, the, sex is probably the key example to that, because he's, he's always there. He's a classic. No one can ignore him. He's very sexual. He's very frank about things about sex, like, what's it like to have sex when you're drunk? Why do you want to sleep after you have an orgasm? And those sorts of truths about sexuality are are in his work, even if you choose not to see them. So he's kind of a figure of what we repress. He's there as this kind of repressed other. And I think a lot of people think of Shakespeare as writing about love more than sex. But you have this hilarious list of all the kinds of sex he writes about. Oh my God, Why don't you just yeah. run run it down for us? Well, I'm not sure I could list. I mean, it's been ten years since I read the book. Since I read the book, I'm not sure I could list them all. I mean, I know he has the first mention of dildo. There's gay sex, obviously, in the sonnets. There's sex between old people. There's sex between teenagers. Like every, you know, I I think if you go looking in Shakespeare for anything, you can pretty much find it because he he is this describe. You know, his first role it seems to me is as basic describer of human reality. That I mean, that to me is why he survives. Is that he? Uh, so you know, did I miss any there? I got a bunch. I but, think fel- but, you know, uh, sodomy, fellatio, prostitution. Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't know if this leads directly to my next question, but you also accuse Shakespeare of wrecking love poetry, or at least as love poetry had been practiced up until his time. Well, he definitely took the idealism out of love poetry to me. Now, that said, he he brought it into a new kind of carnality and he brought it into a new kind of realism that, of course, is totally unforgettable and, in my opinion, vastly superior to Petrarch or Sir Philip Sidney. Or, I mean, that's not really fair. He's just different. But looking for a star kind of love poetry um, is kind of out the window here. Now you have more like how does desire work? Why does it last? What, it, what, what does it feel like when desire goes away? And the whole range of human mystery, which um, 
which is Shakespeare. Why do people do what they do? Um, how do they do what they do? And you know, I think that's true for politics as well as love, but certainly in love, the gap between him and his predecessors is huge. So what you were just saying, is that what you meant when you claim that Shakespeare also gave birth to psychoanalysis? Well, I mean, Freud certainly took a huge amount of insight from Shakespeare, and in particular, the notion of repression, which I think is, you know, Shakespeare is both a subject of repression in that, you know, the trying to deal realistically with, with sexuality led to him being repressed throughout the 19th century, which Freud, of course, took great note of, but also, of course, in Hamlet and in several other plays where you have the repression of a whole bunch of things, not, I mean, not just sexuality, but a bunch of other desires coming out in other forms. I mean, to me, from a technical point of view, like what Shakespeare is amazing at is a prolepsis, where you have this, it's like an inverted echo, where you have like slight hints of things played off in a, in a you know, in the B plot or in subplots that then come to fruition in the main plot. And that to me is like, you know, one of the explanations for why his dramatic technique is so powerful. But when you think about it as a critic, when you come to it as a critic, it basically obeys the same structures as as the as the process that Freud described as repression. You were you were seeing where things have been hidden, and you were finding how they come out. Well, Shakespeare's world in his time, it, it, sex was less identity based, or, and also you know extremely bawdy and carnal. So. Did Shakespeare change sex as as you at times claimed in your book, or did he just record and reflect and document his time? Both. I mean, I like I think the the humanism that is the core of Shakespeare to me. Like when I read Shakespeare, what I see is somebody just being around human beings and showing what human beings are, and sort of being unafraid to be in the messiness of human affairs. That humanism, which, you know, has other proponents, like not just in the theater, like you, you could also say that John Donne was a humanist and Francis Bacon and Thomas Brown, my favorite. But they, by reflect, by being so human, like by being unafraid to stay in the human rather than covering it all under ideology or religion or under, you know, a, a grand system, that essentially means that he creates it, he, he allows for a kind of I would say it a kind of empirical focus on desire and that before we judge desire, before we send everyone to heaven or hell, why don't we just look at what we're actually talking about in desire? That spirit really did change the world. I mean, that, that really did affect a whole series of intellectual traditions and, and still grounds what I think of as the best ones. I mean, that to me is still the best kinds of intellectual traditions when you look at human beings and try to figure out how they work without judging them. We could probably talk the whole interview about sex, but, but but moving on, you also have a lot of fun writing about the words that Shakespeare created. And first of all, you make clear just the sheer number of them. Can you give us a sense, a sense of how many words Shakespeare created? There's debate about how many words he created because, I mean, the, the real number is first usage. So, but still, like, I mean, we're talking really common words here, like alligator. Um, you know, my favorite is probably Jessica. I mean, I just think it's crazy <laughs> that an individual person invented the name Jessica, right? No one names their daughter Jessica now because they think Shakespeare invented that name. But Jessica really does 
um, maintain its power. When you um, say he you know, came up with, with Jessica, or maybe it was the first use of Jessica in in theater, well, what, Je- what, what did he, Jessica come from? Well, the source material was Iska, and he changed it to Jessica, which is like, I, I guess it sounds more like Jewess than, than Iska. Like, you know, it has that, which is, you know, Jessica's character is uh, the daughter of... Um, uh, the Merchant of Venice. So, like, that's a conscious choice on his part. That one, I'm pretty clear. It's pretty clear he invented. Um, but you know, some of the expressions he invented: green-eyed monster, snail's pace. Uh, it's really hard to tell if he just he, if he thought that up. That's actually his poetry, or if it's just uh, you know something that he heard on the street and picked up. I mean, it hardly matters because it's still a repository of so much power and so much words that we that we use every. All the time to elbow out of the way. Like, it's just weird that somebody came up with that. And then things like, you know, zany, like, that's an amazing word. And, you know, he's the first usage of it. So, gnarled. Gnarled, yes. They're starting to come back. The onomatopoeia is what gets me. And you just mentioned it gnarled and hobnob gossip. Gossip. Traditional. He created the word traditional. Yeah. I mean, that one's sort of easier to see because it's like a tradition, like it's from a Latin at root, and then he's just applying a sort of, you know, the, the, uh, to make it an adjective. But zany? I mean, how do you come up with zany? It's so perfect. She's zany. I mean, that just says that just says it all. You know, it's not quite onomatopoeia. It's it's more like the exact right sounds to convey the intellectual state. Hobnob, perfect. You know, that is when we talk about the beauty of the English language and how much we love the English language. It's it's words like that, like hobnob. Then there are some words that we kind of still don't know what they mean. And you mentioned some two were frenzy and scammels. Yeah, scammels. We don't know. Scammels is from Caliban, as I recall. And, you know, he has his own. So that that could be some kind of private language of Caliban's that we don't know about that Shakespeare just, you know, he has this way of creating little language groups almost, like the way that the fairies talk in Midsummer Night's Dream, which is very separate from ordinary speech. Like, the, 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 the scammels, we don't know what prenzy means. We can't even make a real guess, but that might have meant princely. The, you know, it, the other thing is it's very hard to tell because of the printer errors and the, the like, wh- whether this is a printer error or whether this is an actual word. Mm. Um, but then maybe Zany's a printing error, too. You know what I mean? And we just took it up. <laughs> no uh, way. <laughs> you know, it's hard to say. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, on a different tack, and I am just so glad that you dug into this story about the introduction of starlings to North America via Eugene Shifflin and New York Central Park because I thought I, I thought I knew the story but but you dug up facts that uh, that I had no idea about remind us what it, what happened there there was a guy in the in the 19th century there was full-on birdolatry uh, he became an icon of Western civilization and its advantages. And so there were many people who took extreme measures in their love of Shakespeare. One of them was a pharmaceutical manufacturer named Eugene Shifflin, who decided to introduce every bird mentioned in Shakespeare to North America. And he tried a bunch of them. Skylarks didn't take. A bunch of them didn't take. But starlings, he introduced 60 pairs. And then a few months later, he introduced 40 other pairs. They took over. 
They are incredibly damaging. Um, if we could get rid of them all in North America, we would. Um, they outcompete bluebirds in particular, as well as we would have flocks of bluebirds in our skies if it were not for uh, starlings. And that's the thing I didn't know. Why were they so successful? Why are they? Do they continue to be so successful in North America? <laughs> I, I don't want to bore you with the technical details, but it's actually about their beaks. They just have an advantage over all the passerine birds of North America. Right. They have bigger muscles or stronger muscles and they're able to dig in and get more worms and bugs and stuff. Yeah, and it also and it allows them to forge for different things as well. And so they're allowed they're they're much more adaptable to different climates. And then they what happens is they take over the prime nesting holes and then the bluebirds have nowhere to nest. So it's yeah, they're very, very damaging. I mean they they look charming and they're you know, they have their own beautiful history in a way. Mozart had one that he wrote a, a sonata for, the Starling Sonata. But like they're they like I don't like to hate natural things. It's not their fault, but they should never have been introduced to North America. Huge disaster. And remind us, all of this Cirrus came from one line in in what play? What Henry the Fourth? In Henry the Fourth, Part One. Yeah. Um, Nay, I'll have a starling shall be taught to speak nothing but Mortimer, and give it him to keep his anger still in motion. And it's just a little line from Hotspur. It's not a big thing. I mean, it's just, it, like he easily could have cut it. Like some actor could have definitely said, you know what? I don't like this. No one, ha- no one knows what a starling is. Let's cut it. I mean, exactly. And then all of this could have been prevented. Yeah, it's, it's also ironic, and you point this out, that this whole debacle was due to only one line in Shakespeare. But at the end of that play, there's a discussion about how people can never control what's understood about their life after they die. Uh, and this Starling story, it's such a perfect metaphor for that. Well, you know, I, I, I think Shakespeare's career was kind of a metaphor for that. All of this stuff that happened, he would never have imagined, right? He didn't, there were no, no his works weren't collected when he died. Like he, he, he would have no, he could never have imagined any of the consequences of anything in this book. He could never have imagined any of it. So his influence is accidental, profound, but tangential to his actions. And I think, you know, this book is kind of like, I wrote it trying to create a Graham Greene-like entertainment, you know what I mean? Where it's like, it is interesting anecdotes, but there is a serious core to it, like almost a moral question. What is the power of a writer? And what actually changes by this work existing? And by just simply drawing out where it did exist, it just showed, I think, a real profound weirdness. Like just just the 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 unpredictability of the future and 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 the unpredictability of of life in general and certainly the unpredictability of of writing a work of art and then seeing it go into the world and you know I I think that's the the, the Starling story is basically an allegory of that to me mm. right like you write this one line millions of starlings are in North America a continent you barely have heard of. Uh, you know, 300 years later. That's, that, that it, it's strange. It's not, it, it, history is not something where, you, I mean, you couldn't blame Shakespeare for that. But on the other hand, this is how effect ripples out. This is how change happens. It's super strange. And I'm thinking some people, maybe not among our listeners, but they're definitely people who don't like Shakespeare. And Tolstoy mm. was probably the most famous one. Yeah. He just hated him and thought he was a hack. Why did Tolstoy hate Shakespeare so much? And and why do you include this story in your in your book about how Shakespeare changed everything? Well, I do really love Tolstoy's pamphlet on Shakespeare because it's so insane. 
Like it really is like, like he spends like 200 pages attacking Shakespeare. And like, it's sort of like if you wrote a, a 200 page attack on strawberry ice cream. Like you don't like it's upsetting to you that people enjoy it because you don't enjoy it. Like, it, you know, there was a famous thing where he would he would say to his disciples, give me any passage by Shakespeare and I'll explain to you how rotten it is. And they would get up and read it. But once they started reading it, they'd be overwhelmed by it. And all they'd want to do is talk about how great it was. <laughs> and this infuriated him, of course, like no end. Right. Like they'd be like, oh, can you believe this bit from Macbeth? It's unbelievable. But I think the reason is that he really saw art as a moral project. And he saw it as a political project as well, something that was supposed to better humanity. And, you know, I don't think Shakespeare understood uh, literature that way at all. I, I think he his works are incredibly morally dubious and, and, and sort of – they don't really take a moral position, I would say. They don't really take a religious position. They, they see good and evil in the same people mixed up together. They see human contradiction and paradox – very clearly and they see human reality and the reality of desire with incredible clarity uh, and when you do that you kind of lose moral sensibility and I, I mean I think that's why a lot of people have hated Shakespeare but had to keep him as a kind of and that's why they bowdlerize him that's why they you know turn Romeo and Juliet into a happy ending and, and all the rest of it the, the thing about Tolstoy he was just he was frank about it he was confident enough to say I just hate this guy <laughs> you know Shaw also had his problems with Shakespeare Right. Like he had a right. because for Shaw, the, you know, plays were had explicit political goals. There are no political goals in Shakespeare, except for him not to be personally killed by the queen. Like that would be a, <laughs> that would be one of the political goals there. But but there, there were no uh, this is going to be a guide to how to uh, run the world. Shaw didn't write a whole book about it either. And I loved what you said about no. Tolstoy's book. You called it one of the loneliest books ever written. It's amazing to write an argument that you know is going to be dismissed out of hand by everyone, right? Like you, you like, against the world. Yeah, you're just like actually Shakespeare's terrible. I mean, <laughs> weird book to write, right? Like even if you, even if you, like even if you hate, even if you hate, let's let's say I hate Kanye West. Even to write that about Kanye West would be absurd, right? Like it, it like it's like people like him for a reason, right? Like it's more important to understand that than to just hate. But yeah, I mean, he was a very his morality made him lonely, Tolstoy, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and that, of course, is, you know, there's a lot of writing about that around around the end, particularly the end of his life. George Orwell, of course, wrote about it very brilliantly in uh, Lear, Tolstoy, and the Fool. And, 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 of course, it's not hard to see in Tolstoy Shakespearean figurations, right? I mean, in his life um, as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think also there's a competition. He thought he was competing with Shakespeare, but I don't think Shakespeare really competes with anyone, you know? So um, it's kind of one-sided. Well, it's a big jump from Tolstoy to Wetzel's Pretzels, but I love that your favorite place to read Shakespeare is the food court in the mall. Why? You can't do it anymore because of COVID. You can't you can't go and work in public places anymore. Well, I love I, I mean I like having people around me when I write. I like having people around me when I work. I find it very humanizing and allows you to remember things. But yeah, I think especially when I was working on Hamlet, I love to work in mall food courts because I sort of think of Hamlet as a play about loneliness and a play about these blank public spaces that have kind of been emptied and and and. and 
trying to find a soul in the middle of these soulless places. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do love working in malls, but maybe I'll get back to them if there are malls in the future, which uh, at the moment doesn't yeah. seem very likely. Well, you, the first thing I thought when I read that was that it kind of replicates the atmosphere a little bit, not not nearly as many prostitutes, I'm sure, but uh, replicates the atmosphere <laughs> of going to the theater in Shakespeare's time. All the eating, some rowdiness, yeah, you don't know what's going to happen. As you say, fewer fewer prostitutes and also fewer bears being attacked by dogs. True. Uh, Depends and, on the mall. Although, you know, I say that, <laughs> but, you know, we've been driven out of both of them by the plague, which, you know, is a perfect comparison. I, I think, you know, I've been thinking of it lately. If I had another shot at this book after 10 years, I, I might talk about why he never wrote about plague. Because he only wrote about it in one play. And, and I wonder why he chose not to write about that when he wrote about everything else. Well, that really uh, leads me to my last question, which is, as you said, it's a really different world right now since the time that you wrote this book, which was, what, around 2009? and Yeah, it must have been. Yeah, yeah. where Barack Obama had only been president for a year. Just and, come to office. Right, yeah. and people were still piling up all these hopes and fears about what that meant and social media was kind of not much cultural criticism yeah. was still you know in the hands of of uh, of people in power and experts you. yeah so yeah. with that all gone now i wonder if there are anything if there's anything else that you might have considered about shakespeare's influence besides the play I question i definitely would have written about coriolanus um, I also would have written about Steve Bannon because he actually wrote a screenplay based on Coriolanus. If you ever get a chance to look at it, it is really something. It was a hip-hop, hip-hop Coriolanus. It was a hip-hop, yeah, mm -hmm. hip-hop Coriolanus in L.A. It, where he rewrote the language, which is, you know, I mean, that seems insane. You don't rewrite Shakespeare. He he knows what Steve he's doing. Steve Bannon does. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. But the um, But, yeah, I mean, that play, which is about elites who use patriotism and then try to transcend it into a kind of cross-national criminal elite. Like, that seems to me a very, very relevant play. I've been thinking a lot about Hamlet a lot lately, too, about breakdown and, uh, and how yourself is affected by, society, by borders falling apart. And, you know, he, I, I do really believe that he, he did. This thing that is really strange about him is that he doesn't lose relevance. He keeps mattering. Um, and, and, and I think that's because of his relentless focus on, on the human. He's still there. It's like he was there before us. You know what I mean? It's like he's waiting at the door. You open it and he's there. Well, I can see why you're thinking about Coriolanus because you've just come out with this new book on a very different topic. It's called The Next Civil War, and it predicts the end of America. So mm -hmm. what is the Shakespeare connection, if there is one, for you here? Well, it's certainly like how will people respond to breakdown. I mean, I also think that, you know, it's a very crude explanation for tragedy, although I actually find it quite convincing that there is a tragic flaw in a character. I mean, the Shakespeare professors listening to this will be horrified that I would bring this up, but, you know, I think there is a, a thing in tragedy where what is beautiful about a character, a, a person, a, a, a moment in time is also what leads to its destruction, and that that, that paradox that is beautiful and terrible at the same time. And... You know, what I see in America is exactly that thing where it's it, what gave it strength is now shredding it. 
yeah, I mean, I think that would be one connection, if that's not too bleak for a Shakespeare show. Mm, well, it's... <laughs> I don't think we have a choice, but... But right. uh, when yeah. you were writing that book, did you find yourself going back to Shakespeare or searching anything out in Shakespeare? Or I, I think Shakespeare, what Shakespeare to me is the permanence of Shakespeare, the reason you go back to Shakespeare all the time is that he is a humanist and he is, he is the humanist who is most in love with the human and the most in love with the capacity of language to describe the human. And that to me is like, you know, that gets battered around from a lot of different sides. There's a lot of people who don't want humanism and who want to live in ideologies. But when you go back to Shakespeare, you realize that's all nonsense, that all there really is, is this attempt to understand human beings on their own level. That's what literature is about. That's what leading a, a humanistic existence is about. And that and, and its power is permanent. I, I would say that, you know, when you go back to Shakespeare, because you can find anything there, it, he's not necessarily a guide. You know what I mean? Like, you don't go back to find things. But if you want to write, like, say, a description of a sheriff who goes off the rails and turns himself into a traitor, you would, of course, look to Shakespeare because he's done that. Hmm. Right. Like he and he's and he knows how to create those characters and he knows how and he knows how to balance that action with with externalities and, and, and like things happening outside of it. And, you know, he's just the master at that sort of thing. So, yeah, Shakespeare's never very far from my thoughts, to be honest. Like I, uh, I, I, I he's sort of always with me. Stephen, it's great talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Stephen Marsh is a novelist, essayist and cultural commentator. His book, How Shakespeare Changed Everything, was originally published by HarperCollins in 2011. His newest book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, has just been published by Simon & Schuster. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Influence is Thine, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Jenna McLennan at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. There's something I'd like to ask you to do. On Apple Podcasts, they decide which podcast to recommend by looking at which ones have the most reviews and ratings by their listeners. So, if you like Shakespeare Unlimited, and you'd like others to know how good it is, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your help. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.